All right. So Revelation 19, uh, chosen to call this the return of the king. <laughs> um, but there in uh, Revelation chapter 19, it's, we see basically two parts to this chapter. It breaks down into verse from verses 1 through 10 to, and verses uh, 11 through 21. Um, but if we look here, number one on your outline there, we see the scene in heaven. The scene in heaven. Now verses 1 through 10 are sort of focused in heaven. The scene in heaven. So letter A, the praising of God in heaven. We see the praising of God in heaven. And this is in response to the fall of Babylon, which we saw in chapters 17 and 18. There's the praising of God in heaven. Can I get a volunteer just for verses 1 through 5 there? Read verses 1 through 5. Revelation 19. Go ahead, Paul. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen. Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. Okay. So, the praising of God in heaven. First of all, number one there, it says the praise of the saved multitude. The praise of the saved multitude. Now, God is praised for judging the harlot. We, we just read about this, um, like I said, studied it in chapter 17 through 18. But he is praised. Now, this is, you remember that ever since the outset of the book of Revelation, we see, we've seen um, the, the, the saints, the martyred saints under the altar, asking how much longer. We, periodically, we see references back to that. Uh, and again, in the prayers of the saints that were in the vials or the, the, the odors um, that, that the Lord had. And, and there's a possible correlation there between those prayers uh, so in, in the vials of judgment, those seven vile judgments at the end of the book. So um, we have here a, a praise in heaven and, and the angel has already announced, hey, it's, it's, praise God for this. And so everybody now is praising but he's praising for having judged the harlot. And we talked about how the Babylonian philosophy, really starting at the Tower of Babel with, with Nimrod, working all the way up forward through the book and, and through our culture today, we can see a lot of Babylonianism. Um, the, the Babylonian religion on its own is still very much alive inside the Roman Catholic Church with its prayers to Mary. And prayers to the saints, really co-worship of Mary as a co-redemptrix. Um, but also, we see it in, in the lighting of candles and beads. These things are all very Babylonian in their origins. But uh, all that's gone now. And so, like Henry Morris points out, hallelujah, like amen, seems to be one of those words which is the same in many languages. And I think, uh, I think actually Pastor Robinson last week made mention in a sermon that uh, hallelujah was the same in any language. It's never been retranslated into another language. It's always just been, you say it. Uh, and I think that is kind of indicative of the fact that uh, God 
really the praise of God is the praise of God and it transcends every language, every tongue, every nation, every ethnicity. And so um, that, that word, now here we have it spelled with an A, you know, hallelujah, other places we see hallelujah, it's the same word. And that, that brings up an interesting point. And this is sort of a little bit of a, of, of a rabbit trail here, but I, I promise not to chase it too far. God inspired his what? Word. God preserved his word. So God inspired it and then he preserved it. I want you to notice that we are promised inspired words, not necessarily inspired and preserved letters. Spelling may change. Okay, I, I know that there's, now there's not many, but there are a few people out there who make much of whether your King James Version spells it um, the Savior with a U or, sa- or Savior with just an O. Yeah, that's the old English spelling. Yeah. But so, so what do you do? So what do you, what do, you uh, do when you write it out? Do you, use the o, do you use the U or would you use the O? Now, you could, if you were quoting the Bible, then, you know, if it's a direct quote, you'd probably do well to use the U. But if you're just writing it, he is my savior, don't feel compelled to use the U. You can just use the O. Uh, it, it's the same because uh, I, there are people who make much of, well, it's in the Bible and savior has seven letters. And if you spell it without the U, it's only six. And that's the number of man. And it, it, don't, don't, don't be stupid. Okay. <laughs> Okay, um, they're out there. I, there's not many, but they're out there. Um, so you just, just, we're missing a letter here. It's not missing, it's just the way they spelled it this time. Yes? Just be mindful when your kids are taking spelling tests. Mm-hmm. It's the same for color and a lot of other words. Yeah. They spell it with a U and I've never heard of it. Yeah, uh, shop is not S H O P, it's S H O P P E. Um, you know, you can, so are there ways to spell it? Yes. Although I don't really know in England, do they still spell it with two P's and an E? Uh. Probably. Yeah, probably. And I think that's a good, that's a good, that's a good argument for the fact that we, we speak American, not necessarily English, but, uh, letter D here. Well, uh, let's go letter C. Hallelujah means praise the Lord and amen means so be it. Praise the Lord, and so be it. Uh, God's people have always praised him and desired to see his will done. So there's the hallelujah for the praise and the so be it for thy will be done. Um, and, and so we, we see these things here uh, in the passage coming out that uh, Brother Paul just read for us a moment ago. But also we see the praise of the elders, the praise of the elders. The praise of the elders. Now, Dr. H.A. Ironside writes, It is noteworthy that on this, their last appearance, as upon their first in chapter 4, they are seen in in the attitude of worship. They adore the Lamb as Creator and as Redeemer in chapter 4. We talked about that. And here, they adore God as moral governor of the universe for the display of His righteous judgment. Very interesting, when we study the scripture, I think it's sometimes helpful to do things. Where's the first time we see this group of people? Where's the last time we see this group of people? Is it the same group of people? What are they doing? All these different kinds of comparisons speak volumes, but 
the first time we see him, and Dr. Ironside here says this is the last time as they're, they're, they're praising him, but uh, we see here creator and redeemer and governor. Now, uh, letter B there, just another sub point. God himself joins in the rejoicing. There is a reference to Psalm 22, verses 23 through 24. Now, now, let me say this. It says a voice from the throne. It does not say that it's God himself. There is, there is the chance that it is possibly an angel or one of the beasts, uh, which we've said are kind of under the throne or supporting the throne. But if you look at Psalm 22... There's a reference there. Somebody grab Psalm 22, verses 23 and 24. Okay. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye see, I'm sorry, all ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All ye the seed of Israel. For he hath not despised nor afforded the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him, but when he cried unto him, he heard. Ah, and so this is again in context and in reference to the judgment that was upon Babylon. All the saints of the ages really crying out for deliverance from this, from this great persecutor. And here it is. And so this, this, the, the voice from the midst of the throne there says, Praise our God, all ye servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. So we've got this, it's a reference there. But what else do we find in Psalm 22? How does Psalm 22 start? Thou forsake. Yes. Uh, now that's the words of Jesus. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm, but uh, we see references to the cross there in the first part. And here, after that, we see references to a victory being won, uh, also wrought of the Lord. And so, uh, since it was Jesus who's quoting Psalm 22, uh, I would rather think that it is also uh, probably God who is, who is finishing out. <laughs> A quotation here or, or, or making a later reference. So it, anyway, I'm not going to get too dogmatic about that, but there is, there is a response from the throne and then a following response after that. But letter B, I want you to notice the marriage supper of the lamb, the marriage supper of the lamb. In verses six through 10, it says this, and I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude as the voice of many waters as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he said, <clears throat> I'm sorry, and he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called into the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is a very interesting statement in there. I, I almost went into a little bit further. We're going to kind of, for the sake of time, we started a little bit late here. But we have here the marriage supper of the Lamb. So first we see rejoicing in heaven over what's, what's just happened on earth. But now we see 
their attention turned to uh, the Lamb and the Bride of the Lamb, that being the church. So, number one here under letter B, the preparation of the bride. We see the preparation of the bride. And note the stark contrast between the two women of chapters 17 through 19. 17 and 18, we see uh, Babylon, the great whore, and in, in chapter 19, we see the chaste bride. Uh, quite a contrast there. Uh, the harlot is clothed in purple and scarlet, and she's judged. The bride's judgment was taken away, and she's arrayed in fine, white, clean linen of righteousness. And that's Christ's righteousness, by the way. He got, she got her wedding garments from him. And so we see from, from the first part of the chapter to the second, there's a transition. Um, and I have that here in, in letter B. This passage marks a change in the symbol used to illustrate the church from the elders to, to a bride. So we see sort of a change of metaphor here in the middle of the, in the, middle of the chapter. And there are different opinions. We talked about this earlier about who the four and 20 elders are. Um, but uh, here again we see uh, these are not mentioned in the, in the passage but note that the saved multitude in heaven recognizes the bride of Christ as distinct from themselves this further supports a pre-tribulation rapture because there's something that is distinct about the bride You've got the multitude, all those the, with the voices of like many waters and thunderings, just so many of them. They're all around, and they're saying, look at the bride of Christ. And, and we, hey, we're being called to the marriage supper. So um, there are a multitude of saints in heaven that are just saved people. So it goes back to what I said. From Genesis to Revelation, you always and only have one means of salvation. That is, by the grace of God, through faith. You see that manifested clearly everywhere. All saved people are saints. Not all saints are church. We don't have as long a lifespan, and we've never seen the things that were in the past, and got a hard time imagining the things that will be in the future sometimes, but uh, the church is a distinct entity. You know, I, I have heard the, I have heard the, uh, the argument, well, God, you know, he's no respecter of persons. Therefore, people of God just means people of God, and, 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 and Israel and the church are not distinct. They're the same. And, but if you're, if you're going to take that argument, you have to start further back than just the church. You have to say, well, uh, God is no respecter of persons. Therefore, he didn't really call one nation out of all the earth. No. Uh, the extension of grace to any particular people group is not the preference of one over the other. Commandment to write. Uh, the blessing of those who are called to the marriage supper is to the Old Testament and tribulation saints. At that point, there's going to be saints of the Old Testament period, um, Gentile and Jew alike, from the Old Testament times, and those who have died since the start of Daniel's 70th week, tribulation saints, neither of which categories are church. And because we see the church as distinct from both tribulation and Old Testament saints in heaven, they're all praising, look at the bride, she's in fine linen. 
hey, we're blessed to be a part of the marriage supper. This other group of saints that's up there singing and praising God is recognizing the bride as something or someone other than themselves. They're making a distinction there. That's a very subtle uh, fact of this passage that that can get overlooked by a lot of post-tribulation or mid-trib or pre-wrath people. And uh, even John's first reaction was to worship the angel. And he says worship there. You know, the great sight that he's seen, the great things that he's... Why would he... You know, you know he's seen God on the throne. And he's seen the Lamb. And he's seen everything that's unfolded. We're, we're coming to the tail end of all this. And he's still got that inclination to bow down and worship that angel. Isn't that interesting? You know, and it's kind of... Really, it just shows you how there's sort of a... You can have an idolatrous bent... Right there in the presence of God. It's possible. John's idolatry was not, though, turning away to worship the angel. It was just, I think he was caught up in the moment, and it was an excitement, and it seemed to be the thing to do, even though it wasn't. And he received a rebuke for that. We just read it. I don't think he was necessarily meaning to not worship God as much as he was just show maybe a sincere appreciation for the angel, maybe a little bit more than he should have. That's a very good policy for us to follow here as well. When we, um, when we like a preacher, boy, we really like that preacher. And, so, and, and sometimes, sometimes we get a little bit of uh, hero worship going on there. If we're not careful, we'll just start to blindly listen to whatever comes out of this guy's mouth just because we like him so much. You're a man of God. I know you're not God, but I'm going to really throw in behind. And, and, and I think this right here is a pretty good testimony that, look, if you can't even bow down before a holy angel out of excitement for the things that God is doing, you shouldn't be doing it to any man either. So uh, there's a, there, <laughs> we, we sometimes get that idea of hero worship. And this angel's been with him for a while, showing him all kinds of things, talking to him, having conversations. We have to watch that. But he had a command to write about the blessing of those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, number two here, we need to scoot, but number two, we see the scene on earth. So we've seen the scene in heaven now, the scene on earth. Um, this is a little different. <laughs> a little different thing going on here. Verses 11 through 21. First of all, letter A, the glorious appearing of Christ to rule. We're going to notice the glorious appearing of Christ to rule. Can somebody grab verses 11 through 16? 11 through 16, Revelation 19. Go ahead, Paul. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Well, there we go. 
uh, quite different from the image that a lot of people want to have of Jesus today. Um, you know, and I think probably if more people paid attention to Bible prophecy, we would be a lot less likely to go around with this idea that is preached in so many churches around here that Jesus is your little buddy. <laughs> God is your little, he's your little cosmic genie. He wants you to have your best life now. He wants to make every day a Friday. This, this is, this is, let's see, what's the best way to put it? Um, heresy. Okay. Uh, you know, <laughs> if we have the right idea of Jesus, think about what that does for us. Well, I'm just going to sin because God knows, you know, I can just, I'll, I'll, I'll get right later. Uh, let me just I, just, I just really need to do this. I just really want to do this. I know this is wrong, but we would do well to remember the flaming eyes <laughs> and the vesture dipped in blood and that sword that comes out of the mouth and that title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It sort of changes our perspective when we take a look at the biblical view of Jesus. By the way, he looked a lot like this, I believe, before the incarnation. It's always the thing. You know, he may not have worn the, 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 that, that sash dipped in blood. That may be something after the cross for his, for his return. But God has always been a warrior. Now, first of all, number one, I want to pay attention to the appearance of Christ. And we've already talked about some of this. The second coming follows the marriage supper. So while the rest of the world is having hell on earth, there's a section of that, probably that, that latter half of the tribulation somewhere there, and maybe the last quarter, where there's a wedding feast. There's a marriage supper, it says, of the Lamb. Uh, go ahead, let's note the, co the connection here between this passage and, and uh, Revelation 3.14. Go back there where he's talking there again still <clears throat> to the seven churches at Asia Minor, and in particular the church of Laodicea. And unto the angel of the church of, La of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. The, the beginning there means the source of the creation of God, the creator, essentially. You remember what the problem of the Laodicean church was? They were lukewarm. As a matter of fact, just, just let me review here. The, the church of Laodicea. Laodicea uh, is a city that was named after uh, the wife of one of the Seleucid kings, uh, Laodicea. Uh, that name means the people's rights. So this was the church of the people's rights. And by rights, we're not talking about, you know, in the same way as we would think of a right today, but more along the line of their expectations, their privileges, the church that bowed to the whim of the people. Does any of that sound familiar? And then even today, there are many Laodicean churches. We've got many of them right around here. Uh, large churches that look like nightclubs. 
that, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> like what Pastor Robin said, Robinson said, he said, I don't know if it's original with him or not, but their sermonettes preached to Christianettes while they're puffing on their cigarettes. Uh, these are, the, these are the, the lukewarm churches that focus on what they can do to get the crowd. And once they've got it, how do they keep it? And in here, uh, remember, all this is getting passed around with those seven letters to each of those seven churches. And so here's a, here John kind of brings it back around um, with this sort of the same link, that creator. And here's the image he wants them to have of Jesus Christ. That blood which represents a terrible sacrifice on his part, but also terrible judgment to come. Somebody has to pay with blood. That's the law of God. It's either going to be us who are going to pay with our own blood, or it's, or it's uh, Jesus who already paid for our sin with his blood. Now, which blood are we going to spill? Which blood would we rather have? Well, we need his. But if we don't take his in this day, seen in Revelation 19, they're going to pay for it with theirs. Now, Morris notes this, he will keep his word, for his word is true. He is very faithfulness and very truth. And because he is true and faithful, he must act in righteousness. He must finally, after long ages of grace and mercy, become the judge and warrior. He's dressed for war. And that kind of brings us to the next point about the passage. We see the warfare of Christ, and we'll not spend much time here, but with the warfare of Christ, there's not a lot of detail given. You notice that he comes with his armies. But his weapon is his word. The sword that proceedeth out of his mouth, it's a bizarre picture, isn't it? The sword that proceeds out of his mouth. And we're reminded of what, uh, uh, of what the Apostle Paul wrote about it. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And, and, and we're reminded also that it is like a two-edged sword, quick and powerful. So, but this is the same, this is the Word. It comes from his mouth. I, th I believe John definitely saw Jesus, this, and a sword definitely in his mouth. And it's, it's, there's a symbolism there that is meant to point back to the Word. So basically, he comes with all his armies, with the rest of the saints. But we don't really do much except for maybe provide some background music because it's just, hey, you're done. Boom. And they are. Uh, it's probably, now I won't say uncreation. <laughs> uh, we see that uh, at, with the new heaven and the new earth. But, uh, but it's a destructive act. And I think that the fact that we don't see the church even as a glorified or the angels that are said to come with him in other passages as, as uh, participating in this event, it, I think that it's a good reminder to us that even if we're not going to execute his judgment when he returns upon the overtly wicked in glorified form, along with angels, if we're not going to have anything to do with it there, we don't need to be having anything to do with the judgment of God here in this form. 
We're going to let him handle the judgment of other people. The moment we start to think that we are God's instrument to take care of somebody, we're probably not. You might be the, the instrument of God to take care of somebody, but many times he does not let you know it. You might see it in hindsight, but he's not going to let you know it during the time. Well, your head would just puff up and then he'd have to deal with you. Look at what he did with Babylon. God didn't tell the Babylonians that, that, that he was using them at the time. He told Judah that he was going to. Uh, and then uh, later on, when Cyrus came in, we see that he probably had access to the, the book of Isaiah in which uh, God named Cyrus by name 150 years before the guy was even born. Talking about what he'd do. And so when Cyrus marched into Babylon, the Jews were probably like, hey, <clears throat> Cyrus, we've read about you. You're right here. And lo and behold, there his name was. What kind of an impact would that have? There's a, there's a very subtle message is that judgment belongs to God. Now, um, do not... <laughs> well, it's 1020. That's okay. Go to, go to Matthew 7.1. Matthew 7, 1. Because the, the whole idea about not judging is very prominent in the liberal churches. We are not to judge other people hypocritically. That is the message of Matthew 7. Matthew 7, in verse number 1. Judge not that ye be not judged. Okay, that's where they like to go. Anytime you disagree with somebody on Facebook or Twitter, you're not supposed to judge me. Okay, um, so that's fine. But he goes on to define what he's talking about, and it's hypocritical judgment. Um, but now look what he says in verse number six. Give not that which is holy unto dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine. Now, if you're always, I'm not going to judge, you're not going to be able to define a dog or a, or a pig. He's telling you how to act based upon your judgment of somebody else's character. So did he say, never, ever, ever judge. Don't get judgmental. No, that's not what he said. He said, don't judge hypocritically. It's actually not even possible for us to avoid judgment. Every day you decide to whom you will listen and to whom you will not. You decide who will be your friend and who will not be. You decide these things based upon your judgment of that individual. We're Did you realize church discipline is not possible if we don't judge? Hypocritical judgment is bad. Mean-spirited judgment. We're not authorized. But the simple discerning between right and wrong and how it applies in situations to different people, we are wholly expected to do and accountable for doing. Doesn't mean your attitude has to be nasty. You just say, well, this person over here is doing this, and I just don't believe I can associate with that person anymore. And maybe you tell them, maybe you don't. The situation depends. But you have made a judgment, and you have changed your practices accordingly. We are to do that. You're to call sin, sin. Because if you don't, think about this. If, you're, if, you, if you never, ever, ever judge, you'll never lead a soul to Christ. Because you'll never tell them what they're doing is sin. You'll never point out that they're a sin in need of a Savior. 
Um, and yet we find a lot of this going on in the Laodicean churches, in Laodicean books. All right. The Sacrificial Supper of God, verses 17 through 21. Somebody just read that real quick. The sacri- Revelation 19, 17 to 21. Paul. (laughs) You've got the loud voice today. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth. And all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Okay. Now, number one, the feast is synonymous with a final climactic judgment. His arrival during the Battle of Armageddon upon the Mount of Olives is seen here as the Supper of God, the Sacrificial Supper of God. Now, the Supper of God is, uh, of the great God is contrasted with the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. We've just seen the Marriage Supper. Now we're going to, the Marriage Supper of God the Son. Now the Marriage Supper, uh, or the Marriage Supper, but the Great Feast of God the Father. Uh, the Supper of the Great God is contrasted with the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. There's a connection to Zephaniah 1, 7 through 8. I'm not going to, we're not going to go there, but if you're here on Wednesday, I, uh, I talked about that. Zephaniah 1, 7 through 8, calls it that the Lord has prepared his sacrifices and bid his guests. Um, Now, number two, the doom of Antichrist and the false prophet. The doom of Antichrist and the false prophet. There are only two human beings to be cast into the lake of fire without dying the first death. Uh, The first death is physical death. The second death is eternity in the lake of fire. So there's only two human beings to ever get cast directly in there. And by the way, How's one reason, one way we know that hell is eternal? Because here we see them cast into the lake of fire and they're still there <laughs> a, a thousand years later when God judges the wicked dead. So um, we'll, we'll talk about that later. But the armies of the beast will become food for the birds. And we see a, a, a connection there to Ezekiel 39 verses 17 through 20. And finally, the letter C. Uh, Christians should take heart that even the direst of circumstances gathered around the worst persecution can be immediately turned on a dime by a single word uttered by the Lord. Does not matter how poor your circumstances, how adverse your enemy, God can at the utterance of one word Change your entire life. Amen? All right.